Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. I'm always grateful for your calls and your text messages. I really am. And when you phone in and you can share what's going on in your world, it creates amazing, magical things. Last night that happened with Mike. He called from Edmonton. And this is how all of this started. I just wanted to express my frustration because uh, these people who refuse to wear masks and they, they do this risky behavior like having huge house parties like I'm a high school teacher here and, and there's a huge house party that, that some of our students hosted for Halloween and now there's a huge outbreak at our school. And, and people keep thinking, oh, their, their stupid decisions don't affect other people, but they do. And, and it's affecting our family here because my sister needs a kidney transplant. She had a kidney transplant 29 years ago and, and right now her kidney is, is failing. After Mike's conversation last night about organ transplant and his worries around his family and everything that he was going through, it seemed like this was the right thing to do, and this is what we did. We are learning about organ donation. Now, in that, um, we have some people that we've met here through our network of the radio stations, plus Global, and all these pieces. And one of these people is Carrie Jung, and Carrie joins us now um, to talk about her experience. And again, Carrie, you have one of those stories that it really kind of is fate. Like you must, your belief systems that you were raised with or that you celebrate today must have been at the same time challenged and reinforced into this world of fate. And this was meant to happen. Um, all these people that are in your life today, where, where does that all land with you? Hi, Shane. Um, You've asked a really complex question, and I have to unpack it because there were so many different components (laughs) to the question. You know, you talked about my upbringing, you talk about my value system, you talk about the people who are now a part of my life that had not been a part of my life before. Um, How do I start? (laughs) There are so many pieces i can do it chronologically or i could jump in and start from <laughs> well you you needed a you needed a transplant and um it so happened that you were given uh darcy's heart and you met now you're like like you have been quoted saying like my other yes. mom and darcy's yes. family and um yes. and all of that and and um i can't i can't even imagine the amount of things that had to happen for that to happen? That's a really great question and a great way to put it. The amount of things that had to happen for that to happen and the fact that I have found another family, a new family. So uh, first to clarify, to let you know, I met this family over 18 years ago Uh, We have been in correspondence for the last 18 years, but anonymously through BC Transplant. Um, And I started the communication a few months after I had received my heart transplant. That was in June of 2002. And initially, I wasn't able to contact the family because I couldn't write. I was suffering from so many side effects of my medications that I could not write. So I had to wait a few months, although all along 
in my mind, I knew that I wanted to reach out. I wanted to be able to write a letter to express my gratitude and to let this family know that I was doing well with the heart of their loved one. That was as far as my intention went. I wanted to be able to say thank you. So I did write a letter uh, and it was forwarded by BC Transplant to the family and um, to my great happiness and surprise. Around Christmas time, I received a response, a letter from a woman who identified herself as the mother of my heart donor. And I immediately responded and she had invited me to ask questions about her son. So she reviewed a few details. And so I responded. And after that, she started to sign her notes, your other mom. So that started it. <laughs> so she called herself. She felt that she was like her mom to me. And I immediately uh, seized on that. And I referred to her as my other mom. And I thought about her as my other mom because I was I had her son's heart beating inside me. So that was very, very important. Um, and that led to, of course, you know, 17 years of correspondence anonymously until last year, around one year ago, when both of us were independently contacted by BC Transplant. And we were asked if we would like to meet with the respective families. And we both independently said yes, and that's how things started. So we were able to meet each other in the spring of uh, this year, in February this year. That moment um, with such a built, created relationship must have been remarkable. Listening to um, your heart, mm -hmm. that must have been, um, quite the moment of connection between you two. I think it was. I can't remember whose idea it was. It might have been my sister's. My sister is a nurse. So, of course, she would think to have a stethoscope. Right. <laughs> so I think the suggestion came from her and, of course, the social worker, one of the key people with BC Transplant who initiated this program of matching donor and recipient families, um, he found a stethoscope so that when we met for the first time, <laughs> we were able to do this uh, listening to the heart moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that sort of explains the, the fate part. Where would you be? Where would you be today, Carrie, if you didn't get it? I'm quite sure that I wouldn't be here today. When I first found out in, oh, I think it, I was diagnosed in 1995. I remember speaking to various members of the medical team at St. Paul's Hospital about heart transplantation. And one of the questions I asked was, what would happen if I said no, if I did not receive a transplant? And the surgeon said, honestly, you would live one year, maybe two years, but it would not be a good quality life. You would become more and more sick. So, and that was 18 years ago. So I would not, we would not be having this conversation today if not for the fact that it was possible for this heart transplant and that there was a donor available, a family that was willing to say yes to organ donation. And that's why I'm here today. I can feel your emotion myself. And I've told this story, you know, a thousand times over the past 18 years, but the emotions are always there. Can I tell everybody what you do for a career? 
Yes, of course. Carrie's a teacher. So um, just imagine this for a second. I, I'm, I'm such a big proponent of uh, a few things philosophically. One is that change is always happening. I've never understood why we resist change because change is happening every day. The minute we eat a sandwich or drink a cup of coffee, our biology changes. Like we literally are constantly changing. The ripple effect of our actions also is always out there. And I would just like you to, for a moment, join me in thinking for a second that all of these years from 2002 to today, yes. now there was recovery time in there, so you haven't been teaching for all of them, but all of the kids that have passed through your classroom, uh, through tutoring or after school help, just down the hallway, who you probably scolded for running or get back to your classroom. <laughs> <laughs> The lessons that have been learned um, in that time, the ripple effect of all of this, and how grateful we all must be that just that doesn't even include your family, that doesn't include your friends, that doesn't include associates or people you've given your time and your love to. This is just the children in your career. Their lives are forever changed because of the opportunity that this heart coming to you has given. That magnitude to me is astounding. I really like how you expressed those sentiments. And I really like the expression you used, the ripple effect. I think that is so true. Um, I have to say, I, I don't work with young children, so I'm not scolding them for running down the hallway, oh. <laughs> but I do have to scold them for not doing their homework. <laughs> so there's still scolding involved. Yeah. But to give you an example of the type of impact or the ripple effect that um, my being able to continue to work in this profession that I love so much, just recently... Um, my students, I, I don't always tell my students. Sometimes I don't tell them at all and I teach them the entire semester. And other times I tell them, students tend to talk to each other. And so students from the past will have mentioned something to current students. But just recently I had asked my students to do some work. Uh, I teach writing. So I was asking them to write a bibliography to practice how to use certain guidelines. And I had given them a list of some things that I had published, my own writings, and I asked them to organize the information in a bibliography. And some of the keener students decided to actually read <laughs> the articles of this, they actually did the research. And some of them actually responded. They wrote to me and said, we can't believe that this is your story. Um, one student commented, now I understand why you wanted us to read this particular novel. The novel was called Change of Heart uh, by Jody Picot. So it's just the way that students respond, knowing that I am a heart recipient and that I am able to work and, and share with them, not directly always, the experiences I've had being sick or receiving a heart or recovering from the surgery. But just the fact that my outlook 
has changed because of this life experience. Students really feel that. And I think it helps them become more aware. It helps them um, think about the value of life. And I like to think that it helps them consider signing their organ donor cards because they now directly know somebody who has benefited from organ donation. So I hope that's part of the ripple effect of me sharing my story. Thank you for sharing your heart. Um, have you, there are two things that I've been told, my sister's a teacher, there are two things that I've been told are the ultimate teacher payoff. One is when, and I don't know how long you've been teaching total in your life, so um, I'm just going to ask the two questions and you can let me know. Have you had the payoff yet of having a student become a parent and teaching their child and doing two generations in one family? Or have you had the payoff of a student becoming a teacher and working with a student yet? The answer to both questions is yes. Wow. And I can add a third. I've had students who have gone on to complete their studies and entered professions where they in turn have the opportunity to have a profound impact on other people's lives. So that ripple that you're referring to keeps growing. It keeps rippling out. And I really think that what I do is important not only to the individual students, but really for the next generation. And because I work with international students, I like to think that I'm also contributing to building bridges across cultures and countries. Some of my students have become members of governments in various countries. And I like to think that they now have a more positive opinion about Canada, that they've learned something about my culture and that they have also opened their minds um, as a result of having an interaction in my classrooms and working with other students from different countries. Back to the beginning, I said, do you believe in fate? Yes, I, I always have. Yes. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's interesting that we were talking about fate in class today. <laughs> so good. Well, maybe it's synchronicity or kismet or yes, or something like that. Whichever word you want to use, <laughs> destiny. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a word then? And this is just what's coming to my mind. I didn't plan this. It's just what came into my heart was how important is it, um, the word surrender? Uh, the word surrender comes to mind because what I hear from you is um, surrendering to trust in that fate. I I get the the feeling or it occurs to me that there's a big part of trusting in humanity and love and all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, and I don't say that to diminish um, all the ass kickery you've done in order to the hard work. I don't mean that. I don't. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't mean surrender as, as not kicking ass. I just mean mm -hmm. in that, where does surrender lie with you? And I don't know why I'm asking that question, but it came up. So 
No, it's an interesting question and an interesting choice of words. Um, as you were explaining what you meant when you used the word surrender, a, a different word popped into my mind. And I think it would be more accurate to explain both um, my life experiences as well as my interactions with my students. And I think that word is the word embrace. Mm. So rather than surrender, I think embrace would be more apt in my outlook. Yeah. Um, embracing the fact that I have been diagnosed with this life-changing disease, embracing the fact that I had to have this surgery in order to have a hope of surviving, embracing the challenges that I've encountered since the surgery, the side effects of the medications, um, embracing the struggle to return to work and try to resume a normal life, embracing sharing the story with strangers often, but with students and realizing how powerful it could be to share this story, the kind of impact that it could have. And then to try to get the listeners, my students, strangers, anyone who is willing to listen, to embrace the message underlying. I used to think, or I used to always ask when I was in my 20s, what is the purpose? What is my purpose in life? And I think over the years, as I was recovering from my surgery, and as I was speaking publicly about my experiences, I came to realize that my purpose was to help others better understand their own situations, to try to gain some strength from what I have experienced, what I have to share, and to realize that there's always hope in our lives, whether you're struggling to pass an exam or write a research paper, or whether in the case of your listener, Mike, whose sister is waiting for a transplant and his own concerns and the hope that he hangs on to. I think there's always cause, there's always reason for us to stay hopeful. I want to take your writing class. I love how you share your heart. Um, I'm a big fan of words. The people on the show know that. I haven't shared that with you. I'm a big fan of words and language and the impact of them. So um, I uh, I really, really um, acknowledge how clearly and um, um, honestly you create that picture for us. Um, Thank you. I think you've answered the question. I, I, this whole conversation wasn't about COVID. It was inspired of the impact of COVID. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. But boy, oh boy, I think more than ever. I mean, you're also a teacher um, with a transplant in your chest. And if ever staying healthy was important to you, that's obviously clear, clear for your students, um, clear yes. for the people that are waiting for transplants. Um, that has all been made incredibly clear. Organ donor cards, if you haven't thought of it, please mm-hmm. reconsider it. Please learn about it. Ask the question at your motor vehicle uh, division. Once you get your license, go onto your provincial websites locally and uh, and get those pieces of the puzzle because this has all been made very clear to me um, in all of these things happening. Um, and I feel really grateful and I thank you for sharing your heart. Thanks very much for asking really thoughtful questions. Some of them off the cuff, which makes them even more important because then they come from the heart. Um, They were spontaneous. And you mentioned COVID. And of course that has been in the back of my mind for months. Be careful, of course, take the pandemic very seriously, given the numbers, the increases in the cases of infections each day. I think all of us have our part in taking care of our own health, as well as the well-being of the people around us and society in general. But at the same time, we can't stop trying to live and we can't barricade ourselves physically or emotionally. So I think at this time, it's even more important to think about others, to whether you can help people by making a donation or offering to do volunteer work or making a phone call to someone who is lonely or signing your organ donor card. Any expression that you can make to show that you care and that you are in your own way able to help someone else will ultimately contribute to making this world a better place. I don't think I need to say more than that. I don't think I can speak anymore. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Carrie Jung um, has a heart transplanted in her chest and speaks to it personally. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Shane. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. As we do on The Shift, we talk about the serious things and the things that make an impact of our lives. And we also talk about the fun things that we like to share. And one of the uh, most funnerest of people, it's doubly not a word, is uh, Andrew Ferreira and some science. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Andrew Ferreira is here, and um, and uh, my favorite part of Andrew is when I sent him a text, and I'm like, want to geek out about SpaceX? And he's like, what time? That's it. Yeah. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> you just tell me what you want, and I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, it's so fantastic. Well, thanks for being on, buddy. It's great to hear your voice. And uh, we have a little bit of time here to geek out about a couple of things. So uh, should we start of our conversation about SpaceX? Pretty remarkable pictures of, of those uh, astronauts making their way into the space station and stuff that's been on the TV. 
Yeah, so, you know, because I mean, like, I was watching the whole thing. Not the whole thing. It was like 28 hours, the whole thing. Uh, you subscribe I to the NASA channel, s- don't you? I, I watched probably about six hours of it. Yeah, I do. Um, what? It's cool. If you don't, you should. It's awesome. <laughs> Space rocks, man. It's all, Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so basically, this is the first real you know, real mission uh, that that SpaceX has flown for NASA. You may remember the demonstration mission they did uh, a few months ago with uh, Bob and Mike. Uh, Bob Benkin and... Uh, sorry, Bob and Doug. It's Bob Benkin and Doug. Uh, I can't remember his last name, but he's important. Uh, so that was essentially <laughs> the test mission. Uh, they wanted to test and make sure that uh, with a crew of two, that everything that, you know, that they want for a a more proper full contingent of astronauts was working. Uh, they wanted to drill the space station, because on the space station, they also have to know how to accept the spacecraft. There's a whole, uh, if you watch the stream, you'll see, and you'll you'll hear them going down a list of procedures. Uh, so for every spacecraft that comes to the space station, there's a different list. So that mission was to test what it was like with actual people on board. Uh, but what uh, docked the space station yesterday, or yesterday and a half, uh, was the first real mission uh, for space. It had four astronauts on it. Uh, those are uh, Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, and Shannon Walker of the U.S., and Soichi Noguchi of Japan. Uh, of note, uh, this is Soichi Noguchi's third trip uh, up to the space station, and he's wow. one of, I think, only four astronauts to ever uh, make it to space on three different vehicles. So he's done it on the, uh, on the shuttle, he's done it on the Soyuz, and now he's done it on SpaceX. Wow. How so he's pretty that? accomplished. Uh, and Victor Glover is also making history as the first uh, African-American guy to actually have a run on the station, which blew my mind because I figured surely we've actually had that, and apparently we haven't. So, you know, good for him. That's pretty awesome. Um, it also marks the first time ever that the space station will have seven people on board for an entire expedition or an entire six-month uh, stay. Uh, usually they'll have six or seven during transfers or when they're handing off the station uh, between expeditions, but they've never had them on for such a long period of time. So this is in itself uh, kind of a, a brand new experience uh, on the space station. It's it's not that big. I mean, it is really, really big when you get into like the solar arrays and all the things there. But for seven people, I was trying to find earlier a a, a relative side like it's like as big as a football field but it's not that much space no yeah it it doesn't take up nearly as much of the area that it inhabits just because as far as i know i believe the actual livable space inside is equivalent to that of like a four or five bedroom house but it's not you know it's not bad when you think about it like that but then you have to remember that there are experiments strapped to every wall um, and, you know, you're floating around and there's going to be stuff floating all over as well. So it's not exactly, uh, you know, spacious in the way that a five bedroom house might have a gigantic living room. Um, wow. it's got, you know, the maneuverable area of a five bedroom house, but most of the spaces are relatively small. Um, so it will be interesting to see how seven people, uh, cohabit in, you know, what isn't a very big space. Uh, and it, this could be, and I think part of the reason why they're doing seven um, and I'm not sure, I haven't looked into the science payloads or anything, I not yet, I will. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is somewhat of an informal test for future spaceflight missions, 
uh, to Mars where we'll be having, you know, possibly six or seven people in, you know, confines way smaller than the ISS uh, for months at a time. So I wonder if that's part of it, just to see how people and spaces and the air recycling and water recycling, all of that handles seven people instead of the usual kind of three to five. Do you know about the water recycling, by the way, Andrew? Um, I'm assuming that it's like you see in the movies where they filter out the, the wastewater, clean it, and then yep. reuse it. I'm assuming it would be that way. Yep, that's what, that's what happens. Wow. So uh, today's, today's cup of coffee could have been yesterday's pee. <laughs> Sorry, it's that, true. That caught me off it guard. It is true. That's the reality of space flight. If you're uncomfortable with that fact, you might not be cut out for it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that's, that, that is how it be. I'll never think about coffee the same way again. Yeah, when I look well, at my I next mean, coffee, I'm going to be like, is this coffee yesterday's pee? It's space coffee. If it's mm-hmm. space coffee, then it very well could have been. <laughs> but if it's earth coffee, you're you're fine. I hope unless so. you live in like a weird, like uh, like like prototype technology lab, then I might be a little bit wary. A little bit wary. All right, Andrew. Yeah, so um, some of the text messages have come in, and um, we should probably ask you about them. Uh Oh, Um, since you're um, one first one, uh, John says, yay, Andrew, let's let him out of his cage. Um, uh, If you don't know Andrew and the we when we have him on the show, we often joke that we lock him up in a cage just to uh, keep him (laughs) all in one place. To keep keep it contained. Contained. Um, Okay, Jeff says, what about SpaceX? Oh, I I, that's the thing about SpaceX is there's a lot of. questions about how the, if you will, fluids uh, will flow. Um, hmm. That's one thing that I've always considered and gone, it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know how that would work. Oh my. Or, or how they would float away. But these are things that you have to consider when you're living in a, in a, in a tiny condensed space. In, in, you know, in space, you have to consider these things. Uh, I've seen relationship? proposals. Do you give a free pass to your partner for uh, SpaceX if you're up there for six months? Dear me. Oh, would I? You know what? Maybe. Huh. When space stuff becomes more normal, probably not. But, yeah. you know, if you're in the first, whatever, how many years, like, all right, maybe. <laughs> I'll think about it. Um, yeah. But I, there, I have seen proposals that say that, you know, the very first Mars missions, I've seen people say we should just have it, you know, we should have it be all females just to cut back on more unknowns, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So that's something to think about. But I don't really know much about sex in space. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, hmm. Wish yeah, I, did. I mean, figuring out you're pregnant on Mars is probably like, wow, we're short on time. Um, Ooh. For hey, sure. but, you get, but um, you get to give birth to the first Martian. <laughs> Good point. Um, okay, so this one comes in from Dwayne, and um, uh, well, I, I, how come I have to read these, Matt? Okay, um, I would read them if I could. It I says, have no with, shame. This, this is Dwayne's thoughts. This is Dwayne's text. I'll read it verbatim, yeah. so it's Dwayne's fault. Let's do it. Uh, with SpaceX being in the news, um, I just had the random and weird question pop into. Uh, Dwayne's head he says do women still have their menstrual cycle while in space and I I guess it's a legitimate question I would imagine that like they do yep yeah like why why wouldn't you I guess would yep. be my question because it has nothing to do with gravity but yeah the menstrual um, cycle isn't um 
for lack of a better word, uh, uh, tied down by gravity. It's a natural, yeah. it's a natural um, yeah, physiological happened. process that happens. Yeah, but um, so, the ensuing um, other things makes you know there are other things to be wary of, right? Because again, with you know this is becoming space and fluids, my favorite subject. Um, oh boy! But you know, with with any you know low gravity, uh, microgravity environment, fluids float, right? They just they they ball up because of surface tension and they float. You've probably seen videos of uh, of Commander of uh, of Commander Hadfield like squirting a water bottle out in the space station well, and it just kind of all goes into a ball because that's, that's how what it raises acts. the questions, right? Is that um, like if, if a ball of water floats there when you walk into the room, um, what other things do you need to be super cautious of in order to make sure you're not leaving little balls of water and fluids floating around the room? Yeah. You know, what is, hmm. there is one fact that I just remembered here. Um, and I might have this number wrong, but I know that the, the basic story around this is a thing. Uh, when Sally Ride, who was the first woman to make it into first American woman in space in 1983, um, NASA was like, okay, guys, what do women need? So I, I believe that they sent a hundred tampons per week for that one week mission for Sally. Wow. Cause they didn't know. That's uh, clearly where there are way too many men working in that office. Oh, absolutely. But you know, uh, the I know that the water, like you know, the water recycling systems on the space station, uh, they're not. You know, blood isn't a thing that is accounted for in that. It's water, right? Mm -hmm. Which you know it recycles. You know, your urine back into drinkable water. Um, and because on the space station there isn't, you know, a shower really. Personal hygiene isn't like the biggest thing. Um, so that's another thing that you have to, you know, keep track of up there. So everything that we, you know, we probably take for granted here is a little bit more annoying in zero G, especially when what you want is just kind of floating around. But as far as I know, uh, most female astronauts will simply just take the pill. Mm. It's remarkable. Um, and these are all the things that we, people maybe don't think of about going to the space station and being there for six months. Andrew Ferrer, weird science. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> back into the cage you go. Is that not good? Is that not good enough? <laughs> Send him back into the cage. Yeah, all right. All, all right. right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, buddy. Roadhammer says uh, the good final word. It says, we are Martians. We effed up Mars and then moved here. LOL. Well, I wouldn't put it past us as human race. That's for sure. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. We need to do some are you okays. Maddie, how's the moon dial? Are we okay? Uh, Yeah, let me just chat. That's the moon dial. Is it? I'm just uh, adjusting it, adjusting the azimuth coordinator. Oh, uh, wow, big word. <laughs> just calc uh, calculating the subwoofer. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's time for Are You Okay? All right. Are you okay? You can contribute to Are You Okay, by the way. 877-399-9898. Are you okay with it, too? Are you okay with feeding raccoons? They, uh, they they don't have any problem feeding themselves those trash pandas. Trash pandas. <laughs> now this depends on where you live because raccoons are a problem in some places and um they don't they aren't in other places in our fine country. So well, they're, now, they're are a you problem okay in my with neighborhood. Feeding raccoons. 
I feel like it's, you know, like raccoons that might feed other things, like trained raccoons. Oh, so I'm going to say you never know, right? I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to, I haven't heard any of these uh, today, so I'm wondering if, if uh, Jason's up to no good with these. Are you okay?s Are you okay nope. with feeding raccoons? <laughs> or, or these raccoons that are, you know, when you buy crickets for your snake or your lizard and they're feeding crickets. Oh, what what animal would you feed a raccoon to? I don't know. Maybe an orca or a bear. Oh, I, I don't like that. I'm not okay with that. <laughs> I know I just called them trash pandas, but they are kind of adorable. They're particularly kind of cute. cute. Kind of cute. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, it's with mixed emotion we answer this. Are you okay? Um, described as adorable chaos, a video of a man feeding several raccoons with hot dogs went viral. Here's a clip. I'm going to sit in the snow-covered bench. Holy smokes! Oh, my God! <laughs> yes! 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 I'm wall-to-wall raccoons. You ready? Let's go. Oh, my God. This is crazy. This is crazy. You know, there's got to be 30 raccoons at least. I don't know where they all come from. Oh, my God. Yeah, they all love me. Because I got the food. Yeah, and I got Buddy hanging off me. Yeah. Here you go. Ready? Here you go. There you go. Are things settling down? I got eight pounds of hot dogs here in this bucket. Whoo, things are settled down finally. Holy smokes. Yeah. Gotta get two hands going here. Yeah, they're all. Yeah, I tell you, see, they're really, really super hungry because of the cold, and it's minus six hour right now Celsius. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like thirty raccoons. So they're snot like growling and snorting and sn- snorking and um. And your text messages are funny. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so just to be clear, though, he says, "Yeah, I got like eight pounds of hot dogs." Um, <laughs> can we can we just clarify? Hot dogs and wieners is kind of like toast and bread. I mean, maybe he had eight pounds. Maybe he had eight pounds of hot dogs, but um, a hot dog is a cooked wiener in bread. And um, and toast is bread after you heated it up and it's crusty. I just feel like we should clarify. I don't think he's feeding them hot dogs. Like there's no sauerkraut and mustard. <laughs> yeah, they, I think he misspoke. Yeah, they aren't lining up to uh, get f- like fried onions or uh, sauerkraut or right. And, That's you know, right. Dijon mustard. Mm, High class raccoons. <laughs> um, texture says they will eat you too, dumbass. <laughs> he's a 300 pound hot dog oh my god 
No, he was wearing like the thickest jacket in that video. Like, I, I'm pretty sure he had like some protective like layers under there so, yeah. to make sure that he doesn't get hurt. But like <laughs> it, was just, it was hilarious. No, That's surprisingly, crazy. he had nothing covering his face. Like, it was surprisingly really big, bulky, big, bulky jacket. So, I think you didn't. I think surprisingly is uh, maybe just for you. Not surprised. <laughs> okay. Um, Are you saying eating raccoons or feeding raccoons? Um, I'm okay with both as long as you're eating raccoons. They're raised in captivity. I've never had raccoon. I don't know if they're good for your cholesterol or not. Um, Raccoons are dirty, destructive animals. They damage houses, cars, and they go through your garbage. What do you call them? Garbage panda? uh, Trash panda. Trash panda. I just hate these animals, says John. Um, Feed them corn chips. They love corn chips, Catherine says. Um, then another texture says, I can tell you a funny story about a raccoon, and a long handed shovel. <laughs> <That's not okay. laughs> that sounds like it doesn't have a happy ending for, uh, for one of those yeah. parties, one of those parties and Toronto is the raccoon capital of the world says texter. You know who would disagree with that? Anybody in Vancouver. Oh yeah. Yep. I, uh, frequently on my walk home from work, once I get into my neighborhood, always raccoons yeah always there's always like a pack of them and like me and my i think yeah sometime last week me and my girlfriend were out smoking or my wife sorry me and my wife were out smoking and we like a family raccoons just came out of the tree just out of nowhere (laughs) they fell yeah clumsy pack of raccoons um were they all wearing hoodies too? By the way, when they were yeah, they had, stalking you. They had little tiny hoodies. They were they were looking for hot dogs, but we didn't have any at the time. So <laughs> you only had wieners. Raccoons. Sorry, guys, I only have wieners. I didn't bring hot dogs. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.